What up, family? Welcome to episode 126 of The Genius Life. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a health and science journalist and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods and The Genius Life. Hope you guys are all doing well. I'm pumped for this episode of the show in which I welcome Mike Murray. Mike is the CEO of Teton Waters Ranch. Uh, Teton Waters Ranch is one of the sponsors of this podcast. Um, but one of the reasons why I appreciate them as a company and why I've invited them to come on board and collaborate with me on the podcast is that they produce hot dogs, hamburgers, and sausages using only 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef. Um, their cows are humanely treated and they actually are raised to pasture on grasslands that were formerly essentially destroyed by monocropping and, uh, and monoculture. So environmental sustainability is hard-coded into the constitution of Teton Waters Ranch. And as a result, it's good for the earth, it's good for the planet, it's good for us, it's good for the cows. Um, and so I wanted to have the CEO on, Mike, to talk about some of their farming practices, why grass-fed, grass-finished is better from an environmental and health standpoint. You're also gonna discover how to create food equity with your pocketbook so that people of different socioeconomic backgrounds can access healthy grass-fed and finished beef. You're gonna learn about the shocking types of feed used in the conventional feedlot system. This is why you definitely wanna minimize your consumption of grain-fed beef. We talk about the different types of grass that cows can eat when simply labeled grass-fed and why all grass isn't created equal. And you're also going to hear a little bit about his journey as an entrepreneur, uh, going from small brand to small brand to ultimately big brands, uh, but big brands that weren't necessarily created with sort of health in mind, and then going from that to Teton Waters Ranch. So it's a very interesting conversation. There's a lot of actionable takeaways. It's also a very compelling story that Mike has to offer. So saddle up and get ready for the ride. This episode is sponsored by my good friends at Perfect Keto. Perfect Keto make a line of really useful products. If you happen to be on a ketogenic journey, they uh, in fact make some of the best keto-friendly cookies I've ever had in my life. And I'm not just saying that. Their chocolate chip cookies and their peanut butter cookies are amazing and they're shelf stable. You can just keep them in the cabinet for when you have that cookie craving, which uh, I know many of you do. I definitely do. And they also make a keto bar that if you, again, are on a ketogenic diet and you're looking to, for something to stuff into your you know, your bag to snack on when you're at work or in your car. They also make keto bars. Uh, they have about 13 grams of protein per bar. And I know that they've been rigorously tested to make sure that they do not spike your blood sugar. My friend, Anthony Gustin, who's the CEO and founder uh, of Perfect Keto, actually field tested uh, with a continuous glucose monitor um, during the development process, their bars. And I know that they are definitely keto friendly based on that. So if you'd like to check out anything that Perfect Keto has to offer, all you got to do is head over to perfectketo.com slash genius and use promo code genius and you'll get 20% off of everything plus free shipping plus one of their free uh, one of their nut butters for free on orders of $80 or more. So that's perfectketo.com slash genius. Use promo code genius. You'll get 20% off of everything, including those delicious cookies I mentioned earlier, their protein bars. Plus you'll get free shipping, plus a free nut butter on orders of $80 or more. So uh, yeah, enjoy that. This episode is also sponsored by my good friends at Live On Labs. Live On Labs makes a number of important supplement products that all utilize a liposomal delivery system to make sure that you're able to reach the levels of whatever supplement it is that you want to raise levels of um, in a way that sort of bypasses the regulatory mechanisms that can sometimes prevent you from absorbing high doses of uh, supplements otherwise. So for example, vitamin C. Vitamin C, you can absorb pretty much all of the vitamin C from the food that you're consuming. But once you enter supplementation territory, there's actually kind of a limit in terms of the amount of vitamin C that you can properly absorb from an oral vitamin C supplement. That is not the case with liposomal vitamin, T, vitamin C technology, which is what Live On Labs uses to create their vitamin C supplements. And we all know that vitamin C is really important for collagen production, really important for immune support. If you'd like to uh, learn more about their liposomal technology and 
give anything that Live On Labs produces a try, all you got to do is go to liveonlabs.com. And that's live without the E. So it's L-I-V-O-N labs.com. Enjoy and uh, tell them Max sent you. All right, guys, I'm pumped for this chat with Mike Murray, the CEO of Teton Waters Ranch. talk all things grass-fed beef and regenerative agriculture. This is going to be a great chat. And uh, I really, really valued um, my time getting to chat with Mike Murray, you know, a guy who's so seasoned in the food industry. I learned a lot. But before we get to that, I just want to give a shout out to iTunes user Little Alex, who left this glowing review for the show on iTunes. Little Alex wrote, woohoo, and left five stars and wrote, this podcast has been my tried and true since the beginning. Max is one of the few wellness experts that I truly trust. He's authentic, honest, and so informative. This podcast has been the gateway into health and wellness for me and has sparked a passion and desire to learn that I didn't know was there. Thank you, Max, for all you do for this community. Well, little Alex, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to leave that rating and review. You didn't have to do it, but you did. And that means a lot to me. So thank you. And to all you guys out there who've left ratings and reviews, I appreciate you so much. Please, if you haven't, take a moment to do that. Rate the podcast. Leave us, you know, however many stars you think I deserve and leave a review. I read all of them, obviously, and I'm always interested to know what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to hear less of. I'm truly all ears. I'm so grateful to have your attention for this hour once a week. And um, yeah, join my newsletter at maxlugavir.com. Very easy to do, and you can opt out at any time. I send out important stuff uh, about once a week. Join my text message community by sending the word genius, text the word genius to 310-299-9401. I would love to connect with you there. Make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast. New episodes go up every Wednesday and I've got some epic episodes uh, in store for you guys. Um, And yeah, now without further ado, I'm excited to do a deep dive with Mike Murray. Mike Murray, thanks for being with me on The Genius Life. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Max. It's my pleasure to be here. Big fan. Oh, oh man. Thank you so much. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you because you are the CEO of Teton Waters Ranch, um, and you guys make some of my favorite 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef products, and uh, wanted to get you on the show to talk about um, you know, the food system as you see it and the benefits of going grass-fed versus grain-fed. Um, but I guess first, let's start with your, you know, backstory. How did you come to to get involved with Teton Waters Ranch? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'll try to I'll try to keep that uh, to a relatively manageable length. Um, it, it, it's been a journey to get to Teton, and I'm delighted to be here. But you know, it's it, the food systems. I think the right way to frame up uh, the conversation. And I've been. Um, you know, a participant in the food system from from inside of it, from a manufacturer's and brand builder standpoint for uh, the better part of 25 years now. Uh, it's hard to believe. Um, uh, everything from uh, General Mills uh, for 10 years to, um, you know, much smaller entrepreneurial organizations. Um, you know, I, I got hooked on the change agent and entrepreneurial uh, aspect of uh, driving positive change more aggressively within the food system. Once I uh, got exposed to some brands we had acquired that qualified as that uh, at General Mills, and then I decided I needed to do that exclusively for the balance of my career for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, so made the leap of faith, jumped to a, a small company uh, called So Delicious Dairy Free, based out of little old Eugene, Oregon, um, from Minneapolis at the time when I was with General Mills. And um, the rest is history, really, uh, really hooked on um, everything that's involved in the, the smaller end of the food spectrum. And, and the main reason for that, in addition to enjoying, enjoying the work uh, uh, on a day-to-day basis, is that, like I said, it's a a much more aggressive and palpable way to drive positive change in the food system, which, you know, as you uh, are well aware, and most of your guests are, are well aware, is one of the biggest uh, things we can do to drive positive change in society. Yeah, I'm just curious, what was the turning point for you? I mean, you were, you were at General Mills, huge company. You mm-hmm. said you made some acquisitions that kind of opened your eyes to the way that things could, you know, potentially be done differently. What I mean, how were things done in your mind prior to those acquisitions, and then what was sort of like the, uh, you know, the the turning point for you? Well, it was it, it was really um, 
and, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll caveat here because um, I, I, I'd like to talk, you know, honestly about the entire spectrum of the food system, and the entire spectrum of players within it. And I uh, truly enjoyed my time at General Mills and have the utmost respect for um, what they do as a company then and now. And they are participating in some of, uh, of the change that's really, really important. I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but I didn't, you know, and I learned a ton about uh, running a food business and building a brand with some of those heritage brands that were built, um, you know, almost 100 years ago and, and serving, you know, boomers really well. Um, and, and I learned a lot and had fun doing it. You know, one of my favorite assignments way back in the day was as a young associate brand manager on Hamburger Helper of all businesses. Um, and, you know, th that's very different from the kind of brands I work on now, but um, I'll, you know, I think it's important to realize and note, and we spent a lot of time interacting with consumers, that that brand did um, service a very real need for a rare, very real and very large portion uh, of our population where convenience and value and, and a family that's, that's happily fed um, is, is of huge value and Hamburger Helper served that need well. Um, despite having some uh, opportunity areas and other other parts of the value equation in terms of better for you food. So, um, you know, I, I, I like those assignments just fine, was learning a ton. And then um, I, you know, my first brand manager assignment was on a new group within General Mills um, with a really undefined charter. And it's hard to believe this didn't already exist, but it was uh, uh, to be part of a central health and wellness strategy team to figure out how to move the company forward more aggressively on its health and wellness uh, strategies um, and also take take more credit for the brands and businesses that that are, are better served on that um, part of the spectrum already. And that really hooked me. Uh, it informed me a lot on uh, the good and the bad of the, the traditional uh, food system and some of the traditional brands um, at General Mills and beyond. Um, uh, but really with an emphasis uh, on the good is where my passion just reached the next level. After that assignment, shortly thereafter, as I mentioned, the brand I was referencing that we acquired, that I was uh, privileged to be the first to work on on the General Mills side was Larabar, which uh, ironically enough was uh, born out of the Denver area where I am now. Um, and it's just a phenomenal, groundbreaking um, bar brand at the time that that you know brought simplicity uh, to to nutrition bars for the first time. The entire line was just dates uh, and spices and nuts and fruits, um, and, and that's it. Um, and it was growing like gangbusters. That's what attracted General Mills. And, um, mm. uh, you know, we, I'm, I'm proud to say, I think we, we handled the integration of that brand relatively well uh, as compared to some other M&A activity within the space that's happened in the past and, and since then. So um, that really hooked me on it. And, uh, I, you know, when I, when I decided, uh, my wife and I, that um, it was it was time to make a move. We we were really for my career looking for kind of that pre-acquisition Larabar type situation where I could go help create something at an early stage that that did real good uh, on multiple fronts. Um, and uh, that's when So Delicious Dairy Free came up. I'm sure many of my listeners are familiar with uh, both brands like Larabars and uh, and So Delicious. And I just think it's so cool to. You know, to step back and think about these these huge, ubiquitous health food brands, and realize that they probably started. They probably all came from really humble beginnings. Absolutely. Um, whether or not we, you know, an individual listener may choose to incorporate these foods into their into their diets, um, it's just interesting that you know at the beginning they were just like mom and pop brands looking to do things differently and create a healthier, you know, a healthier alternative to. Um, to yep. you know products like ice creams or whatever yeah to what uh, exists or didn't exist yeah yeah and, yeah it's, you know and it's kind of amazing I, I you know i hesitate to call the beginnings humble although they are by, by traditional definitions but um you know I'll, I'll clarify that i i'm not an entrepreneur and i never will be and that's because i um, have a first-hand knowledge and appreciation for how entrepreneurs are wired and the kind of passion drive and 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 uh uh, lack of risk aversion that's involved in, in what they do in terms of identifying an un unmet need, um, you know, generally putting everything that they have into it uh, from a risk standpoint and just um, chasing that passion and uh, turning, turning it into something from nothing. Um, what I've learned to do is be able to be a, a classically trained person who can come in and work well. Uh, with entrepreneurs uh, when the time is right for them to have that help and help an organization 
um, go from uh, an early stage to a, to a middle stage, which um, there's, there's a nuance to that skill set. But um, for me, it, it all starts with operating out of extreme respect for how founders are wired, what they're made of, and the fact that a lot of what I like to, to do uh, for a career wouldn't be there if they didn't have that courage and that drive. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So you gravitated to these these health and wellness sort of brands. What what was your your personal relationship with health and wellness like at this point in your career? You know, for me for me personally, Max, to be honest, it was it was it was variable and and fraught with uh, inconsistencies and contrasts and hypocrisies. I think like like any normal person, and you know, I arguably had less of an excuse for them because I was uh, as a career food professional. Uh, better informed than most, right? Um, but throughout, you know, especially as I started focusing more on these um, sort of, as I like to call them, advocacy, health and wellness, mission-driven brands, um, I, I changed positively, um, you know, not just because I, I believed in, in the good um, that they did in general, but I was interacting with consumers who were passionate about it. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the uh, animal-based versus plant-based protein um, debate and discussion that's going on right now, um, which I think is all good. I, I do have a unique perspective on it because I've, um, I've both lived and worked on on both uh, really multiple ends of that spectrum, and I think there's a place uh, there's a place for all of them. And um, you know, the key to, key to progress and positive change is is respecting people's uh, where they are in the spectrum and why, um, but still driving incrementally for, for better collectively. Um, so I would say, you know, again, I, I've always been an omnivore. I've been a meat eater and that was true. And I never hit it. Um, when I worked for the better part of eight years exclusively on, uh, vegan brands that were, um, driven by very passionate consumers that, that put themselves into that category, not exclusively, but, um, you know, the, the certainly a vocal important uh, minority in helping build the communities that that built those brands. Um, so I was upfront with them, and I, you know, uh, brought them into my journey sometimes. And um, I definitely uh, have rebalanced my my plant animal consumption over over time, uh, as well as other you know, important uh, better habits as it relates to both eating and uh, and fitness. Yeah, love that. I think that there's this uh, sort of this misconception uh, in out in the wellness world that like vegan food brands are somehow more benevolent or perhaps, you know, prioritize profit less than animal, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in inclusive brands. It's like a, it's, it's a super strange kind of halo effect that I think like vegan food brands have, but you've, you having worked on both sides of that aisle, um, is there any truth to that or, you know, is it really, you can, you can prioritize benevolence and doing good for the environment and the individual from both sides? Yeah, I, for, for sure. Having been in the food industry long enough, I, I, I think I, I, I can go ahead and, and say concretely that, um, and it happened still while I was at General Mills, I, I sensed it happening. You know, early on, uh, before the millennial consumer, you know, was was starting to get more vocal and prominent um, in terms of a, a an attractive household from a from a from a food standpoint. Um, it, there used to be this really extreme tension um, between kind of doing the right thing and doing the profitable thing. Um, about halfway through my tenure at General Mills, um, I started to sense, based on just what we were hearing from growing consumer groups. Um, that that tension was going away, and you know that's why you know General Mills got active in M and A and did their did their best to adapt heritage brands, which isn't always easy to to the changing um, consumer demands. But um, the consumer population and psychographic, and uh, uh, in terms of the way they think about food and what they demand of food companies. Um, has flipped now it's not that's not to say that there's more highly engaged consumers than there are not uh, yet but it's flipped such that there's there's um scale in those that are and it's growing much faster and you know it, suddenly it became pretty easy to um uh, have the right types of conversations internally because when the consumer demands it 
that becomes the, the, the right thing for the food companies to do. And it, and it becomes, you know, possible to, to do the right thing and, and make money and, and really get after that triple bottom line without it being, you know, diametrically opposed to each other, which, you know, for a long time, too long, um, was the case in the food industry. Yeah. Love that. So you're now at Teton Waters Ranch. Um, yes, sir. And, uh, I've been, I've been enjoying your guys' products so much. Uh, but for listeners who perhaps are unfamiliar with the brand, like what, what kinds of stuff do you, um, do you, what kinds of products do you focus on? Yeah. So, um, from a product standpoint, you know, we re actually really consider ourselves more, more than a product company, um, uh, a solutions company. You heard me talk about this a little bit on the, uh, the event we participated in together the other, the other day. Um, we're really, our mission is about, um, grass fed beef. 100% grass-fed and finished beef done right as a tool um, to regenerate uh, and uh, improve the planet. Um, you know, the origin story goes back, um, you know, quite a few years ago, uh, more than 15 years ago. Um, and we, uh, we started in the Tetons and, you know, it was uh, a real estate deal that yielded this, this interesting plot of land that was, dead from generations upon generations of monocrop potato farming. And um, our founder had this, this growing passion for, for learning about and, and testing and trialing um, uh, recovering land or rejuvenating land. And he tried a bunch of stuff he learned about from his friends and, and uh, colleagues. And, um, you know, the inflection point didn't really come until he tried the idea of introducing um, ruminant specifically cattle um, with a spe very specific uh, approach to how to manage them on that land and then you know almost overnight by by ecological standards that land um, became vibrant biodiverse grasslands producing you know almost as an accidental byproduct um, really great really great grass-fed beef that's amazing so, so the land was basically like just what was the land before you placed ruminants on it? it like, like I said, it was a potato farm for generations. What is that? And I mean, I don't, what, what is like, where, what kind of land do you grow potatoes on? Well, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a monocrop. So, you know, whatever the land was, if you want to grow potatoes on it, you got to kind of raise it and flatten it and make it uniform um, and, and plant and, you know, all the things involved in um, industrial monocrop production, you know, potatoes are the same way. And, you know, this land before it was rejuvenated um, was a visual testament to the damage that that does uh, to a piece of land um, uh, in terms of an approach to agriculture. Uh, it's just a, uh, you know, an equation of degrading it bit by bit each year um, and, and eventually the land um, really isn't very efficient or productive at all. Um, and it's, it, it's hard to bring it back, but it's doable. So, you know, I'm just totally enthusiastic about the idea that, um, the food industry is shifting the conversation again, you know, 15 years ago, it was really cool to talk about sustainability and, you know, at the end of the day, that semantic was entirely inappropriate in terms of not aggressive enough. Um, you know, We've done enough damage. Holding serve at where we are is nowhere near adequate. <laughs> we, we all know if we're going to make this thing work out, we actually have to strive for improving from status quo or regenerating. And um, yeah, that's why I'm so pleased that, again, uh, companies inclusive of my alma mater, General Mills, are, are helping us get the word out about regenerative agriculture as, as a very important next phase of the food system. Yeah, it's so crucially important. So, I like I said, it's, we're, we're more of a sorry, Max. We're more of a, a solution, um, and, and grass-fed beef, you know, drives our mission, you know, which is to create a more regenerative, uh, humane, healthy food system for all. Um, and right now, um, we think an important part of that is 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 bringing grass, the world's best grass-fed beef, mind you, into categories that kind of kind of drive home that for all aspect of the mission statement and uh, our. Our biggest product lines are in um, very popular categories to the American consumer, like uh, hot dogs and dinner sausages. We more recently in um, uh, the, the freezer case of your nearby your local grocer with uh, 
really the first beef, much less 100% grass-fed and finished beef breakfast sausages, uh, which are fantastic. And uh, more recently, we got into um, burgers, and we, we, we did that in a pretty unique, unique way as well uh, by combining our beef with with 30% mushrooms to really um, kind of allow for that flexitarian um, preference and and uh, and bring people an option that's not not binary, um, which I think is a good way to to think about the whole discussion. I love that. I'm a huge fan of mushrooms, so uh, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to trying that to trying that blend. I um we got to get you some if we haven't already. I apologize. Yeah. I, uh, I just, I, I love that these, that your products are like, cause you know, when I was a kid now, I love, I love having a good grass fed grass finished steak. But when I was yeah, a kid, yeah. I wouldn't say that like I was, you know, I would regularly crave chops like that, you know, but hot yeah. dogs, hamburgers, sausages, those were like among my favorite things to eat. So I love that you're sort of like democratizing these, these vastly healthier versions of these products, uh, for, for families really yeah it's got and it's got to be kid friendly to a certain degree to to be relevant to their everyday life um that's that's a big part of it um i'm in this i'm in the same phase with with my boys right now i've got three of them and they're all over the map on how they eat and how they think about food and eating um but yeah unlike their dad none of them really uh relishes sitting down uh to a a great grass-fed steak yet but i'm sure it'll come at some point (laughs) that's funny i never thought of like a steak as being an acquired taste but i guess me neither (laughs) yeah that's that's funny um so what for listeners that uh that are that are unfamiliar with the difference between conventional beef and you know these sort of buzz terms that you hear thrown about organic pasture-raised grass-fed versus 100 grass-fed and Mm grass-finished how does your average consumer know what to buy at the end of the day? What what are going to be the healthiest options for them and their families? Yeah, first and foremost, I think um, I need to acknowledge, and we need to acknowledge that it is far too confusing for the average consumer today. And you know that that's part of part of our our mission that we're embarked upon is to help um, simplify that, clarify that, uh, and educate in a way that's that's palatable to uh, um, all consumers uh, in that regard, because. It shouldn't be confusing. There shouldn't be black box, and you know that's still an industry-wide problem in the food system. Um, gra- the whole uh, conventional versus grass-fed, you know, and let's just go ahead and include plant-based uh, spectrum. Um, it might be among the worst in terms of confusion today. Um, the way we try to simplify it and get the word out, you know, we we like to use kind of a four box quadrant. If you'll if you'll bear with me for a minute here, it's it's better visually. So we'll we'll figure out how to uh, partner and get that word out visually. But we think of a four quadrant, um, you know, model for uh, beef specifically, um, and you know, not even all grass fed is created equal. Um, hmm. on, on one on one axis, just think about a really simple spectrum of uh, production method where, you know, uh, on one end, on the bottom, there's um, animals that are really uh, crowded and confined, right? And on the other end of it is animals that are, are not crowded and there's no confinement and generally from a spatial standpoint are allowed to behave um, naturally. Um, you know, that's one spectrum, uh, sort of the degree of confinement or lack thereof. And then across the the um, horizontal it's you know you know what what they eat and what they're fed but with an emphasis on um, what they're fed towards the end you know how they're finished we talk about grass finished and that's crucial so bottom left if they're heavily crowded and heavily confined um, and you know you know they're every animal eats grass at some point and that's part of the confusion any company can say an animal is grass-fed and you know not be at legal risk technically that is not untrue but it's it's mm. definitely an irresponsible way to to talk about it based on what the consumer is really um asking about um so that conventional animal it eats, eats grass um but 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 um at towards the end of its life it's put in a feedlot and it's fed grains and soy um and all kinds of garbage um you know, where the travesty is, these animals were not uh, engineered to eat this food. They are specifically engineered as ruminants. You know, the ruminant stomach is a fascinating machine specifically designed uh, to eat and process grass. 
um, and it gets all messed up when you feed it other things. And uh, you know, uh, in addition to to GMO grains and and corn and soy and what have you, um, that's prominent within the conventional beef uh, industry. You know, there's there's other even kind of grosser and difficult to imagine things that find their way in in the, in the spirit of efficiency, weight gain efficiency towards their end of their life. Um, that makes them sick, and then they're all confined in a in a really inhumane way, and that's conventional. Now, what else? What other what what other kinds of unsavory things are they fed? I've heard plastic shavings occasionally make make their yeah. way into the into the feed. Yeah, we we actually have a have a display in in one of our trade booths with you know back when trade shows were a thing. <laughs> we'll see when we get back to that, but um, where we we show examples that people can touch a feel of a good feed, and that's various various types of naturally occurring grasses out of the ground. Um, and then the other side of it is real examples of bad feed, and the one that always um, strikes the most fancy in conversation is it's basically a bin full of uh, of old skittles. Um, but it's it's a well-known fact that um, uh, lots of times expired candy uh, makes its way into into cattle feed as well. Basically, anything that doesn't have another home that um, can provide short-term calories uh, has probably been tried and used in the conventional um, system, uh, which which is unfortunate. And you know, but that's not really the stuff that makes it sick, gross as, makes them sick, gross as, as it is. Um, the, the concept of eating uh, grains instead of grass uh, in and of itself is what makes them sick. It's not as, not as gross, but uh, when you force an organism to eat something it was not designed to eat, uh, it makes that organism sick. And, and that's why you know the antibiotics, et cetera, uh, have become the norm in terms of managing that. So that's the lovely, lovely bottom left of the quadrant. And um, yeah, the confusing part is uh, marketers can get away with saying grass fed in that model. They don't tend to go that far if it's if it's concretely the conventional um, supply chain. Um, but but in theory, they could. And there's probably some dishonest players out there doing that. So, so um, that has to get dispelled. There's another uh, above that on the spectrum on the top left side of the quadrant model, if you will, there's um, more, they call it pasture raise, right? And the problem with pasture raise is, okay, it's better. They're not confined as badly throughout um, th their entire life. Um, but again, up in that spectrum, they are still uh, grain finished, right? So um, at the end, we force feed them stuff uh, that they're not engineered to eat and they get sick. And um, it really defeats the entire purpose of them having some more room to behave naturally earlier in their, in their life. Um, so that's you know uh, less confined but still finished on grain, uh, sometimes called pasture raised, which people will wow. assume means all the good things they want it to mean um, in marketing within beef. So that's problematic. Shift to the right hand side of the um, the uh, model here, and on the bottom right, you've got um, basically grass feedlots, right? So people will make grass-fed and finished claims, and they won't be legally wrong, but they're, again, still not what the consumer wants because the way they're doing that is they are confining them in a way that's inhumane, um, and, and then they're feeding them uh, in a concentrated way with things that are technically grass, but uh, it's, it's pelletized, um, it's a pelletized delivery of things that are technically grass, and that's not what consumers have in mind either. Um, hmm. And then in the top right, there's there's the way Teton and and uh, select others do it that is growing fast, but it has a lot a lot you know a long ways to go, um, which is true 100% uh, grass fed and finished pasture uh, uh, and no confinement throughout their life, and nothing but eating naturally occurring grass out of the ground throughout their entire life. So that's 100% grass fed and finished, and then we. Um, we throw a, a certification called Certified Humane um, over the top of that uh, to cover some other things that that um, that go beyond diet uh, in terms of treating animals as well as possible. The, is there any indication on packages if a, if whether or not a cow has been fed grass pellets versus naturally occurring grass in the ground? Absolutely not. Unfortunately, wow. yeah, and there therein lies the rub, and we we have. Um, we have some industry groups that are that are working on certifications that can that can you know police that which we wish wasn't necessarily the industry but 
there's a role for it um, where confusion's getting out of hand. Um, and, you know, uh, unfortunately, when, when there's room to cheat, it, the, you know, the economy kind of incentivizes cheating and uh, certifications can help uh, turn that around. So I hope are we you, make progress you, on that soon. Interesting. Are you aware of any differences in like the health quality of the meat or the fat perhaps of an animal that's been fed grass pellets versus uh, naturally grown grass? Yeah, very, very. Um, probably not in as technically sound a way as, as you and, and some of our um, more scientific colleagues uh, are. But you know, the fact that the meat is better for you is something we're passionate about. I, you know, we have uh, three three pillars of, of um, vision underneath our mission, and and you know, the regenerative mission in terms of what it does for the planet. Number one for us. But, you know, just because that's our origin story and that's primary about what, what the team today is passionate about, um, then, then we, we're passionate about the fact that we're treating uh, the animals that we're eating with as much respect as is, uh, as is possible um, throughout. Um, but, but the fact that this food is better for us as people and better for the consumer from a health standpoint is majorly important to us. Um, and again, that's, that's not just about the de debate between is, is meat in general, good, bad, or in between for you. That's about the fact that, you know, yes, we believe obviously meat is good for you. Um, but uh, we, we believe that grass-fed meat coming from a happy, um, properly raised animal is even better. And, and um, most often point to the, uh, you know, the same things you've mentioned in a lot of your content in terms of the, uh, the better balanced omega uh, ratios. Um, that are great for a ton of reasons, including brain health um, and, and the, the vitamin and mineral content, uh, et cetera. It takes a, a nutrient dense food and just drives it into an even, uh, even better place when it's truly grass fed and finished. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, super interesting. Why, why is it that you guys don't, uh, is there a reason why you guys don't like have steaks, you know, available or, you know, like why, why is it that you guys have elected to basically produce, um, burgers and, and hot dogs and sausages yeah. and foods like that. That's, that's a really good story. And, and, uh, I'll try not to maim it cause I certainly, um, haven't been around for all of it. Uh, but if you go back to the early days of Teton, we, we, we did that and we, um, it, having that direct experience, um, has actually, um, informed and, and uh, provoked our evolution to what we do now, because we think um, we can actually help the movement in a very real, very specific way um, th that's important. You know, when, when you raise your own animals and you invest, you know, incrementally more to do them the right way in terms of 100% grass-fed and finished, everything we just talked about, you know, sounds quite a bit more expensive than the conventional alternatives, um, and, and it is, um, you know, the, the, the rancher that has made all those investments um, now has the challenge of what um, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this term um, in your network. Uh, it's called carcass utilization, right? So they they spend a bunch more, and in general, it's easier to move the um, whole muscle cuts that that turn into premium steaks you find in restaurants and such um, for a premium, you know that. Uh, that uh, pays for the increased expenses of raising the animal. The problem is, you know, there's something called trim that's perfectly good meat, but doesn't doesn't go into those steaks, um, right. and it's approximately a third of the weight of the animal. And there is literally no way to make the economics work for the rancher if they don't have a, a home for the trim at uh, a reasonable premium um, for the premium animal they raise. Um, and, you know, we, we learned that firsthand, like I said, we, we really had trouble, um, making the economics work, uh, animal by animal. And it was the trim that was the problem, not the, not the premium cuts. So it's actually very overt in our kind of internal strategy as a company to, um, really we do it. Our, our focus is to create demand and build a brand. Um, within accessible parts of the food industry, um, you know, primarily grocery stores. Um, uh, put the product into uh, the categories at a premium that's, you know, um, that's not unapproachable for too many people. It needs to get better um, than where it is today in terms of the premium of, of our products uh, contextually within their categories. But 
it's not ridiculous, um, and we're working to get it lower. Um, uh, so, so, so that's our job. And by creating that demand and and um, uh, being able to make that price point work in these categories, uh, we can buy lots and lots and lots of trim from lots of ranchers from animals that we insist are treated by our standards, which is grass fed in its truest definition and and um, certified humane requirements over top of that. So therein we become a we have become and we want to continue to become a, a really important player in the movement um and you know I'm, it's not to say we'll never get into that business again but right now there's so much opportunity both from the consumer and demand standpoint and the role we can play in scaling the supply chain by being that scaled home for premium trim that that really didn't exist before um, we came up with our product line yeah, I love that. I mean, listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the concept of nose-to-tail animal consumption. Right. Um, I think from a from a health standpoint, uh, you know, that's one thing, certainly very important, and I've talked about that on other episodes of the show. But from a from just an animal welfare and a sustainability standpoint, um, and from an economic standpoint, I mean, it makes perfect sense to be able to use the trim, which, as you mentioned, is just as high quality as you know as Absolutely. any other cut of meat. Um, but then to turn it into something that's like really delicious and allows um, sort of, you know, an, an equitable ability to partake in, you know, in, in this healthy, super nutrient dense food for people. Absolutely. You know, it, all the good stuff I've worked on in the brand since I left General Mills, it's all still too expensive, but it's gotten quite a bit less expensive um, uh, over time. And that's just a journey we have to continue to work on. And that's about, um, you know, driving change at uh, aggressively as you can at the supply chain level. Um, um, uh, but, but the economics have to work. So it's got to work um, simultaneously with that consumer demand um, and, uh, you know, the economics of the supply chain. So um, we're pretty excited about the role we play in terms of uh, um, our businesses that are trim driven. There are other parts of the animal that um, kind of fall in between in terms of how easy or not they are to move that, that are very good meat. And there's other solutions uh, where they they can uh, participate and make a very good product that brings other benefits like uh, convenience um, to the consumer. So that's what our innovation pipeline um, focuses on. Yeah. What can you tell me about the environmental aspect of raising cattle on grass? You know, I think a lot of there's a lot of confusion out there about, um, you know, the 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 raising of cows uh, for the purposes of consumption. Um, a lot of people, for right. example, will erroneously um, say that you know there's a lot of water involved, for example, in the production of of uh, meat. But in fact, a lot of the water, you know, meat is a the raising of cattle is a, a water intensive process, but that water is all rainwater, which yeah. is, I think, what what most people don't don't fully appreciate, as opposed to, right. say, you know, the growing of almonds or um, or avocados or things like that. You know, there's right. like no there's I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe there's very much of any irrigation uh, needed for um, for for, you know, raising cows on grass. No, that, that, that's generally very true. Um, you know, it, certainly less so than conventional and, and, you know, in some cases way less so than, um, you know, the monocropped uh, plants. Um, you know, the beautiful thing about purely grass-fed is they really don't require anything that, that isn't, you know, naturally occurring under the assumption we can give our grasslands the room um, to regenerate and naturally occur and all the biodiversity that goes along with it. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we're tight with a bunch of organizations that are, that are like-minded and, um, the Savory Institute's one of them. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I like to remind myself on a regular basis, uh, of some basics there. Um, you know, third, third of this planet is, uh, is grasslands and over the last 150 some odd years of, um, you know, industrial food production, those, those grasslands have been more than 70% um, degraded, um, you know, including our, our origin potato farm in, uh, in Idaho. Um, and, you know, it's called desertification and it's really one of the biggest wow. uh, environmental problems happening right now. Um, when you allow 
that land to exist as it as it was supposed to and allow the animals to uh, roam on it and and um, exhibit you know predator prey behavior um, as, as if that was still a hap happening back back in the days in the food uh, system um, that grass comes back it gets naturally um, it gets naturally sort of eaten and regrown and you know the cycle of the uh, animals fertilizing the ground and supporting the biodiversity it's it takes it takes no water in fact it's better from a water standpoint when you think about how healthy soil um, holds and retains water whereas damaged soil um, from industrial agriculture um, lets it flip right off uh, and, and go somewhere else where we can't use it um, and that's one of the biggest beautiful things about grass-fed animal agriculture and and um you know the other one is that that whole system of course um has the ability uh to be not just carbon neutral but but carbon negative in terms of sequestering uh carbon from the air into the soil um where where it's meant to be carbon negative yes sir amazing negative being the positive in this context of course of, of course, course, of course yeah yeah that's so interesting um, so what's, what are you, uh, like excited for in terms of the future of Teton Waters Ranch? New, new products, new technologies. Um, yeah. Uh, like where's your, where, what are you excited about? Yeah. Where, where, where to begin? We, we've, we've got, you know, aggressive vision statements and aggressive business plans. And, um, we, we believe in them because uh, we're passionate about them, but we also think, you know, like I said earlier, the modern consumer, um, is increasingly demanding this, and uh, you know we we enjoy the dialogue and debate that that, that goes along with the space. Uh, we encourage it with our own communities. We encourage it within communities like yours. Um, and uh, so one of the one of the things we're most excited about is just you know being on the journey with the consumer and being a voice um, without being judgmental of uh, education and communication uh, and dialogue. Um, on the space, so get, getting the word out, um, getting people informed by some of those uh, some of those myths we talked about in terms of the various grass-fed claims out there, um, and uh, you know, continuing to uh, make the business model work for more and more ranchers to make the choice um, to, to shift from conventional grass-fed, and that's that's a journey, man. That's that's not an overnight thing. You know, the hundred billion dollar plus conventional feedlot system is, is not going to go away um, without a, a good solid fight. We get that. But as long as we're chipping away at it, um, we're motivated. Um, and we are. Um, the, the innovation is really something we're, we're, we're super excited about as well. Um, you know, I, I can't share specifics on what's coming next. And that's not because uh, I'm not willing to share. It's because we don't know. We're still kind of figuring that out <laughs> and listening. Listening. We've got some ideas we're always working on. Um, uh, in partnership with uh, both our ranchers and our manufacturing partners. And our, you know, the hard part is, the good news is the hard part is just picking from among a lot of, a lot of good ideas. There are a lot of categories, if you think about it, across the grocery store um, that have scaled because they, they have meaning and value to the consumer and they're driven by conventional beef. So anywhere that's the case and we can um, raise the game and improve the category by doing it with uh, true grass-fed beef instead. Um, we feel like that's a viable growth idea. And increasingly, our retail partners are, are seeing that as well. So we have to get hot dogs and dinner sausages and burgers and breakfast sausages more available in more stores to more consumers to the kind of democratization of, of, the, of the good food uh, point. Um, but uh, we want to be entrepreneurial and bring new ideas to bear uh, at the same time. Um, so just seeing that change on a day-to-day -day basis uh, is, is really uh, what our team is motivated by across the board in the consumer communities and, and with, our, with our supply chain partners. I love that. And I think for people that, you know, I mean, the, the health conversation is one thing, but if you can afford to, to vote with your wallet for a better food system, um, I, I think it's always worth doing that because that to me is what is really going to serve as the rising tide that lifts all the boats, you know, yes. in the harbor. Like I, I now am shocked to see grass fed and organic options in, in supermarkets and in large sort of retail chains that five, 10 years ago, you would never have seen because these were like niche products. Yeah. And, and now they are, you know, they're available. 
and and accessible not to everybody yet but i think that we can continue to sort of push the envelope and yeah. and 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 demand and create equity um by voting for our wallets if we're able to yeah it's no doubt and it's a journey i mean again i've got a a, a varied set of experiences and perspectives within food so not to bore you but i mean there's an interesting corollary if you look at the history um, and trajectory of, of that um, plant-based beverage uh, category you referenced earlier with, with, with almond milk. Um, I, I worked on it when I was with Solicious Dairy Free, um, and uh, our, our niche was in coconut-based, um, which we, we thought was better for a lot of reasons. But you know, for decades, um, soy milk existed and it wasn't not growing. It just wasn't me meteoric um, by any means. Um, and, you know, the, the pioneers were, worked really hard and, uh, you know, got the word out um, and worked the, the cost down um, to make it approachable. But there was a problem that was holding it back. And that was, boy, it didn't taste very good. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the oft forgotten, but probably most important aspect of driving change uh in the food industry is um is uh taste and as soon as almond milk and coconut milk and some of these uh additional ones that have been added fast and furious since then came into the category that's when it hit a meteoric spike in growth and and started you know taking major share from uh from the, the dairy milk industry so um, you know, that, that's another thing when you, when you, when you start to look at the, the plant-based movement, I get, I can't tell you how often I get asked about, um, you know, Hey, this, this these, you know, plant-based burgers are super hot right now. They're in the news. And you know, are you scared? Is that you concerned? I was like, um, I am not, uh, concerned at all. I think it's great. Um, and like I said, there's a spectrum and I think solutions all across the spectrum are appropriate and represent progress, but. Um, those things are going to have their trajectory, uh, and, um, they're going to be limited by things like taste and, and, uh, a lack of simplicity and, you know, um, what consumers learn as they engage further on the health profile. Um, but again, sure. I, I, I do, I do hope that they progress. Um, grass fed beef is in a much better place as it relates to challenging the hundred billion dollar conventional beef industry, because we have no taste trade-offs in fact you could argue um you know when done right you've got taste benefits in addition to health benefits and um so that that's a huge factor in terms of um getting after a rapid pace of change on on really it's about in cpg semantics shifting share from uh conventional beef to um, properly done grass-fed and finished humanely raised beef yeah, I mean, I, I'm people listening and my followers know that I'm a huge fan of of grass fed beef um, and just beef in general. Uh, but I also um, abhor the conventional factory farm system and conventional right. feedlots and what they do to the animals and just the cruelty. And uh, and I think that as a as a as a person you know who's able to have nuanced thoughts um you know i don't to me i don't see any sort of conflict there you know like i right. care deeply about animal welfare i also care about individual health deeply just as deeply um and i think that you should be able to enjoy the nutrition nutritional benefits that come from eating um meat uh and do so in a way that also makes a statement against the fact that it's like an animal holocaust every single day in this country, right. you know, in, in, the, in, right. in the traditional factory farm system. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I got some flack from, you know, consumers I was close with and colleagues when, you know, um, I, I, you know, left my last plant-based business, you know, small company called free to be foods that makes allergy friendly, um, uh, snacks and confections to come to Teton and, I was like, guys, I get it. I was, I was conflicted and confused at first too. But then, then I reminded myself what grass fed means. And I'm like, I, I just think I can try positive change into the food system faster and more effectively with this than I can with, you know, driving an all or nothing change agenda from, you know, only eating only animals to eating only plants. You know, again, um, much respect for people that make that choice and it's, uh, it's growing quickly, but, 
um, I think the, the 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 more effective way to change in a positive direction is is about balance um, and flexitarianism, which is a word we fell in love with as we as we developed our our burger blend. Yeah, I like that term. Um, well, listeners can learn more about you guys and uh, our partnership. I mean, you guys, I'm so grateful. Thank you for for sponsoring. Uh, this episode of the show and a few other of my episodes. Super, super, super grateful for that. Um, Listeners can go to tetonwatersranch.com slash max to learn more about what you guys are doing. And I highly encourage that they do. Um, Also, I have a recipe on it's, I think I posted it on July 4th on my Instagram, but people should go and check it out. If in case they're wondering how to enjoy a hot dog uh, and do so (laughs) without having to eat a, white flour enriched bun uh in the process um you know something that i haven't had for at least a decade at this point Mm -hmm. um but you'd be surprised how good a hot dog tastes wrapped in a butter lettuce bun with avocado and some pico de gallo and so i have a recipe on my instagram if you want to go and check that out of course i used uh, a teton waters ranch 100 percent grass-fed grass-finished beef hot dog um and that post is on oh it's on july 2nd so yeah you can just go down into my instagram feed and check that out Super awesome. tasty. Have you uh, have you gotten to try that? Have you has anybody on your team forwarded my my recipe over to you, Mike? Yeah, I I, I haven't tried that one exactly, uh, Max. Apologies, but you know I've I've tried almost any unique carrier uh, for for <laughs> our hot dogs you can think of, and uh, um, I mean I'll be honest, my my favorite way to have them is plain because I think they're. <laughs> Um, phenomenally tasty on their own and you know surprise surprise when you just take fantastic beef and pair it with a really intentional blend of spices um, it tastes clean and satisfying and you know if you're a meat lover you're 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 gonna love it it makes a hot dog a, a really sort of uh, meat loving experience which unfortunately the category has gotten very far away from when you look at what the really cheap hot dogs that drive a lot of the household penetration are made of but um, no, we, we, we love getting creative with things to do with hot dogs. Um, and again, it, uh, I'm sure yours is phenomenal and I'll, I'll, I'll give it a try, but, uh, there's, we have dozens, we have dozens of others on our website as well. And if consumers want to go on uh, Instagram at that TWR grass fed beef, um, and we love sharing ideas a lot. Most, most of ours are generated by our community and influencers like you. Um, and, uh, we love it. Uh, it's really fun. Yeah, it is an interesting thing to be able to welcome back to the table, you know, uh, the hot, the humble hot dog. It's, um, yeah. you know, it's, and, uh, and back it's to the table that... is right. It's, it's been justified that <laughs> we kicked, kicked off the table for a lot of those, you know, modern, more modern, uh, consumer households, um, because the, the food's gotten bad in the category. Uh, we're enjoying helping driving it back to a better, better place. Um, uh, uh, in addition to a bunch of other categories. For sure. Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time. I just want to thank you for, you know, taking the time to jump on the show with me and to have this conversation. I'm sure my listeners. Oh, thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, I'm sure my listeners have learned a lot. Um, but before we wrap up, everybody that's that comes on the show gets asked uh, sort of one special question at the end of the show. And that is, what does it mean to you to live a genius life? That's a great question. Um, there's a lot of a lot of ways to answer that. I, you know, Max, for me, um, you know, any any life that's you know founded in you know, awareness of those around you and empathy, especially um, prioritizing connection, living with intention, um, positivity and optimism, and a term I love, extreme ownership um, of of all circumstances, um, it falls into that category. It, it also makes me think of. Um, you know, a brand archetype that, that exists, if you're familiar with those frameworks that I have actually, you know, really intentionally tried to apply to living my life as, uh, across business and personal. And that's what's called the citizen advocate, um, right? And, and, you know, in food, if you're building a brand that's, that's um, mission-driven and, and a challenger uh, of status quo uh, for the sake of uh, good, you know, that qualifies. And um, I think anybody who you know, takes a grain of that and lives their life as a change agent uh, in the positive direction is living a genius life. Love that. Citizen advocate. 
citizen advocate, yes. The, the brand archetypes is a, is a very fascinating um, tool for brand building. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to check out. Yeah, definitely check that out. Um, well, thanks for your time. Mike, really appreciate it. Again, tetonwatersranch.com slash max. You guys can check it out, uh, discover some of my favorite products um, that Teton makes, and uh, text me. Let me know what you guys thought about this episode of the show. You can do that if you live in the U.S. or Canada by uh, texting the word genius or anything else that you want to text to 310-299-9401, 310-299-9401. I look forward to connecting with you uh on my phone and i will catch you on the next episode peace guys <laughs> <laughs>